Okay, today's sermon uh, is entitled, Jesus Does Not Waste Failures. Jesus Does Not Waste Failures. So before I continue, uh, I just wanted to give you a background on what's going on. Uh, for the past few weeks, Eric has been preaching on a series called The Church. And prior to that, we were talking about, uh, we were going through the book of Luke. So since Eric's not here this week, uh, we're going to take a little break from the series about the church, and we're going to look instead at Luke, uh, th- this long passage here. Um, before I continue, there, there's a confession I have to make to all of you here today. You guys ready for it? I love politics. I absolutely love politics. I love talking about it. It keeps me up at night. It gets me riled up. It gives me this whole range of emotions from sadness to anger. And I'm willing to bet that I'm not the only one here who likes politics and likes talking about it. And if you're like me, you've probably spent the past few weeks or past few days, a couple of weeks, um, keeping up with what's been going on politically in the world, especially maybe in America or here. And there's one observation I've made while following politics is that there's an overarching obsession with winning. You've got to win. It's not good to lose. You you cannot lose. Failure is not an option. Weakness should never be shown. But in our walk as Christians in this world, we're going to fail, aren't we? We will fail. We do stumble. Well, today we're going to look at what Jesus says about failure. The message is called, Jesus Does Not Waste Failures, and we're going to talk about three things today. The first is that Jesus does not waste the failures of others. Uh, The second is that Jesus does not waste our failures. And thirdly, Jesus does not fail. But before that, let's, uh, let's pray. Lord, we come before you, Lord, to... Uh, to listen to you, to hear you. And God, I pray, Lord, that the words of my mouth, uh, the meditations of my heart, Lord, would be pleasing to you. Lord, speak through me. Lord, I pray that your word would be clear and it would take root in our hearts and that we would meditate upon it and we would respond to it. And we thank you and um, we pray this in Jesus. Uh, what I'm going to try to do is there, there are going to be no slides today. Uh, we're going to do it a little more old-fashioned. Uh, old if you've got your phone or your iPad uh, back in the day, we used to just have our Bibles and we'd turn to it. If you've got a phone, um, turn to Luke 22, which is basically the passage that we looked at today, Luke 22. And while you're looking at it, I'm going to ask you all a question. Is there anybody here who feels that nobody has ever wronged you? Has anybody ever failed you? Or do you ever feel like anybody sinned against you? Of course, right? Every, everyone's felt that. I've, I've felt that. If I were to sit down here right now and I were to list the number of times this year that somebody has failed me or wronged me, I would lose count. We're no strangers to being victims of somebody else's failures. Well, in the passage we looked at today, it's a story about Jesus and his disciples. And when I think of a disciple, I think of someone who's a devout follower. Think a student of a teacher, but not just a student, someone who is a mentee, someone who's being mentored, um, a lifelong follower. So here, Jesus is having supper with the 12 disciples. And some of us may be familiar with this story. It's called the Last Supper. It's a momentous event. It's a really important event. It was the last supper that Jesus had with his disciples before he died. Now, I'm not going to dive into 
the actual supper and the theology in that, um, the partaking of the bread and wine, which we do here, is, was first done here uh, in this passage. But I'm not going to look at that because Eric will be preaching on uh, communion uh, next week. But I do want to draw your attention to what Luke says here about Judas. And he says, at the time this was happening, uh, to give you some background, Jesus had been traveling around. He'd been performing miracles. He had been raising the dead. And he had been challenging the establishment. The establishment meaning the religious leaders. And he was telling them that he was the son of God. And as you can imagine, this, this, this is crazy talk for them. It did not blow over well with the authorities. So at this point in the book of Luke, Jesus and his disciples were kind of on the run. They were trying to evade the authorities because they knew that the authorities wanted Jesus. So that's the background here. And at this time, Judas, Judas Iscariot, had planned to betray Jesus. And the authorities, meaning the religious leaders, the religious chiefs, had agreed to give Judas money in exchange for Judas. Remember, Judas here is one of his disciples, one of his followers, and he's betraying Jesus. So think about that for a second. It's also important to note here that it is Judas's betrayal that eventually leads to Jesus' death. And I'll tell you how this happens. After the supper, after Jesus had supper with his disciples, and meanwhile Judas had gone to inform the authorities where Jesus was. Remember, Jesus was trying to evade the authorities. After the supper, Jesus and his disciples were in a garden called the Garden of Gethsemane. And Judas brought the authorities to Jesus. So they found him, and they arrested him, and then they tried him, and then they killed him. They killed Jesus. So it's important for us to notice, to note that it is Judas's act of betrayal that directly leads to Jesus being caught and being killed. Judas's betrayal. Can you think of a time recently, maybe not even recently, when someone has betrayed you? What does that look like? Now, I have a story to tell you. For those of you who don't know me well, I have a brother. Uh, his name is Darren, and he's less than a year older than me, just, just under a year. So, so when we were growing up, we were, we were like twins. And he lives in California with uh, his wife and kids. And as you can imagine, my brother and I, because we were so close in age, when we were growing up, we were really, we were really close. And as you can imagine, we fought a lot, and we blamed each other for all sorts of things. I remember this one time, my brother and I were doing a little bit of painting, and he walked out, must have been about four or five years old, and he brought out all this paint in these glass jars. And he's walking, and he drops one jar of paint, and it falls on the ground, and it shatters. And there's paint everywhere. And my mom comes running out of the kitchen, and she says, who did that? And my brother goes, Les did. And I said, no, I didn't. Yes, you did. You did it. No, you did it. No, you did it. No, you did it. I know there are not a lot of kids in here, but parents. Sounds familiar? Um, and even at that age, I remember looking at my brother and going, you betrayer. You betrayed me. You're not my brother anymore. But that's what kids do, right? But isn't that what adults do too? Don't we do the same thing? For some of us, betrayal could be something a lot more serious. It could be a spouse who cheats on you. 
It could be a coworker spreading false lies about you to get ahead in the company. It could be a family member who sits at the table with you who has a completely different political opinion from you. And our reaction is, you betrayer. How can you think that? How can you do that? So that gives us a bit of an idea of what betrayal looks like. But look at this passage again and look at Judas. Judas, one of the 12 disciples, he committed the ultimate betrayal of all, didn't he? Because his betrayal resulted in his master, in his Lord, in the Son of God being killed. I don't know what that feels like. I don't know what it feels like to be betrayed to the point where I'm falsely accused, arrested, and killed. And I bet all of us here don't either, because we were, we wouldn't be here. We, we, we would have been killed. But that is how terrible Judas's betrayal was. Now, we can spend a lot of time discussing why Judas did this. What were his motives? In fact, religious scholars have spent hundreds of years trying to figure out why Judas did this. And the reason why we can't come to any conclusions is because the Bible isn't explicit about it. There is a little bit of information here that gives us some inkling as to what his motive was. Remember we talked about Jesus getting, uh, Judas getting something in return? In the book of Matthew, Judas goes to the authorities and he asks them specifically. He says, what are you willing to give me in exchange for him? So there was a transaction involved. What does this tell us? Maybe he was greedy. Maybe he just wanted the money. But let's look at verse 3. Let's all look at Luke 22, verse 3. And it says this. It says, and it only says this in Luke. It doesn't say this in Matthew or Mark or um, John. It says, Satan entered Judas. Satan tempted Judas. Church, we're reminded that Satan's very, very real in our lives here. Sometimes it's so easy to deny that behind our daily lives, there is a spiritual battle going on between good and evil. And Satan will try to tear us down. And Satan will certainly try to tear our loved ones down, people who are close to us, our friends, our family. Satan wants to tear them down so that we will be distracted from the will of God, so that we'll be distracted from what God's plan is. And that's what's happening here. I don't know about you, but when I, when I read about Judas, every single time I read about Judas, my reaction is the same. It is, Judas, how could you do that? How could you? But we can also see here that Jesus does not waste Judas's failures. Judas failed, and his failure led to the death of Christ. But God used that. God used that wicked works of Judas to further his kingdom. Because in the end, it was Jesus' death on the cross that paid for our sins. And none of, nobody knew this. The disciples didn't know this. But when we look back at it, we can see that God's hand was here on the situation the entire time. So the next time we see someone fail us, the next time we see someone betray us, however we picture that to be, what is our response to that? Well, it's normal to be upset. It's normal to feel betrayed. And I would argue it's even normal to feel angry, that range of emotions. But Jesus is telling us here that even though Satan is at work to tear us down, that God is still in control. God is still sovereign. God still makes a way. Jesus does not waste the failures of others. The second point we're going to look at today is Jesus does not waste our failures. We're going to turn again. Let's look at verse 31, and we're going to focus in on this today. Uh, verse 31. So this is further down the line. They're still having supper together. 
and Jesus talks to Peter. Now, to give you a little background on Peter, Peter is um, considered the leader among the disciples. He was the upright guy. He was kind of like the leader. And in fact, the name Peter means the rock. That's it's from the Latin word Petra or Petrus. So we describe Peter as a rock. So let's, let's look at this together. Verse 31, Jesus says, Simon, Simon, and Simon is basically Peter. His name was Simon Peter. So in essence, he's saying, Peter, Peter, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Peter said to him, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. And Jesus said, Peter, I tell you, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. Peter, Peter, behold, Satan has demanded to have you. And the original translation is Satan is begging to have you so that he may sift you like wheat, so that he may break you down like wheat. Here again, Jesus highlights the work of Satan in the shadows. Satan knows that Peter is the rock. He knows he's the leader. And he decides, I'm going to have a go at him. And he tells Jesus, I'm going to have a go at him. And what does Peter say in response to that? Peter says, no, I'm not going to waver. Jesus, I'm not, I'm not going to give in. So Jesus, tells, so Jesus tells Peter, you know what, Peter? Before the rooster crows, anybody lived on a farm or lived anywhere near roosters? be surprised how many have. Um, but, but when does a rooster crow? At dawn. Sometimes before dawn, way before the sun comes up. And we associate a rooster's crowing as a wake-up call, right? Jesus says, Peter, before the rooster crows, so remember, they're having supper at night, before the, rooster, before the start of the next day, you would have denied that I exist. You'll say you won't know me. Not once, not twice three times. And later we find out in the night that Jesus, having been betrayed by Judas, was arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane. And when he was arrested, Jesus was taken away by the authorities. And Peter, what Peter does is he decides he's going to follow them stealthily. But he doesn't want them to know that he's following them. He just wants to see what's going to happen to my Lord now that he's been arrested. So he follows them. And then Jesus gets taken to a place and while he was there, Peter just hung out with some people in the courtyard. And you don't have to turn um, with me, but further down in Luke, and I'll read it to you. This is what happens. And this is later in the night. Jesus had been arrested. A servant girl sees Peter sitting in the courtyard. And he's trying not to be seen, right? And the servant girl goes up to him and she says, this, this man, this, this man was with him. He, he's one of them. He's, he was with, with Jesus. And, Ju and, and Peter says, woman, I, I, I don't know him. I don't know him. You got the wrong person. And then just a moment later, another servant comes and says, wait, you're, you're with, you were the guy with, you're one of them. You're one of the disciples. You're with Jesus. And he says, man, you got the wrong guy. An hour later, another servant says, surely you're one of them because you're a Galilean like Jesus, whom we got, whom we arrested. You're one of them. And he goes, man, I am not, I do not know that man. And then the rooster crowed, just as, Jesus has, just as Jesus had foretold. In fact, the Bible says, even before Peter had finished speaking, he said, man, I do not know what you are saying. 
And I imagine that must have been one of the most painful rooster crows that Peter ever heard. Does this sound familiar to, to us in our own lives? Denying Christ once, twice, three times. I don't know about you, but in my line of work, we, we do a lot of socializing. We hang out with a lot of friends, uh, many of whom are not believers. And I find it difficult. I struggle in the most simple ways to acknowledge or to remember that I am a follower of Christ. You ever feel that when you're at work? And the reason is, well, if you think about it, what's the reason? Am I embarrassed? Maybe. It's a horrible thing to be about your own God. Is it because I'm not true to myself? Maybe. Or is it, as the Bible says, Satan trying to tear me down so that I may deny Jesus? Maybe. What I do know, though, is that I'm failing, aren't I? Peter, in his overconfidence, he said, I won't waver, Lord. I will not waver. But three times he denied Jesus. And you know what? That happens to me all the time, doesn't it? Not just once, twice, but over and over and over again. I'm failing and I'm sinning, that's for sure. Here God uses a rooster's crow, the proverbial wake-up call, to wake Peter up, to jar him, to shake him into his senses. What is your wake-up call? What has been your wake-up call? We've all had moments in our lives when we've gone through this. Well, Peter, having remembered what Jesus said when he heard the rooster crow, was in anguish, as you can imagine. And he left, he left the place, he went outside, and he wept bitter, bitterly. The Bible says that he cried bitterly. Have you ever felt like that? Have we ever felt that level of guilt? As I was going through this, as I was studying the Word, um, trying to come up with a sermon this, this past week, I thought about this, I was thinking about it. Have I ever been in that situation with, where I was in complete anguish? And it's, it's hard, it's hard to describe what Peter is going through. It's easy here, but to get a sense of what Peter felt at that time, the only thing I can think of is this. Think of someone who's the most important person in this to you, a human being, the most important person. Might be your mom, your dad, it might be your spouse, it might be a mentor, a teacher. Think of that person. And imagine you're with that person and someone comes up to them and says, oh, we're going to arrest him or her, falsely accuse him or her, and then you follow them to the police station. And as that, this person, the most important, most important person in your life is being processed at the station, someone comes out and says, oh, you're, you're with him, aren't you? You're, you're, with, you're one of them. And you say, no, no, I'm not. I, I don't know that. Once, twice, three times, only to realize what you just have done. That's my way of trying to admit it. It's a horrible feeling. And during these times, when I realize my sin, when I realize what I've done wrong, I feel repentant, and I feel sorry for my sin. And during these times, it's right to cry like Peter. It's right to feel broken. If you're looking at, if you have a sense that Jesus is looking at you, and it breaks your heart knowing that you've sinned against him, then we need only to look at verse 32. Let's all look at verse 32. Jesus says to Peter, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail, and when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail, and when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Church, Jesus is praying for us. He's rooting for us. He really is. He's rooting for us. And not just that. He says, once we have turned, once we've come back to him, strengthen your brothers. And what's mind-blowing for me here is this, is that he doesn't say this 
to Peter after Peter has sinned. He doesn't say, oh, you've sinned, but you know, I pray for you. No, he says it before. Before Peter's even sinned, he says, Peter, you're going to sin. You're going to deny me three times. But when you come back, strengthen your brothers. Wow. I mean, just think about that for a second. We have a God here who says, I know exactly what you're going to do. You're, go you're going to fail me. You're going to stumble. But I'm going to pray for you on your behalf. And when you come back, do you see what Jesus is doing here? When you come back, strengthen each other. Strengthen the people around you. This is what he tells Peter. And you know what? This is precisely what Peter does. When you go back home later today and you want to read through this, it's, it's mind-blowing. What Peter does in his anguish, in his disappointment, in his brokenness, he turns back. He renews his devotion and his loyalty and his love for Jesus. And then, as we know, eventually Jesus was arrested and he was killed and he died on the cross. Three days later, Jesus rose again. When Jesus rose from the dead, the first of the disciples that he saw, the first one, was Peter. Can you imagine what that must have felt like? And then 50 days later, 50 days from when this Passover, this Last Supper happened, 50 days later, Jesus was about to rise to heaven and the Holy Spirit was descending on earth. Huge things were happening, big things were happening. And Peter stood on a mountaintop on a mountain in front of a multitude of people, and he preached his first sermon. In 50 days, we go from a man who denied Christ three times, and in 50 days, he's preaching. And this is why today there are churches called St. Peter's Basilica, and there are cities called St. Petersburg. Peter, the rock. Jesus does not waste our failures. Jesus did not waste Peter's failure, he will not waste our failures. And this leads to the third point uh, today, is that Jesus does not fail us. So we can see now that Satan will try to tear us apart. He'll try to break us down. Satan will also try to tempt those around us so that they will tear us down. We know that there are Judases who will betray Jesus. And we know that if Peter can stumble, Peter would rock. If he can stumble, so can we. But we also know that Jesus prays for us, and he cheers us on. He strengthens us, he encourages us, and he knows how it's going to turn out for those who believe in him, for those of us who confess our sin. And it's mind-blowing because the story of Peter doesn't just describe the life of a believer or our walk as a believer. The life of Peter is actually good news to the unbeliever. Most of us here at some point have prayed, prayed the sinner's prayer. And the sinner's prayer is basically, Lord, I admit my own sin. I admit that I need you. I accept you as my personal Lord and Savior, and I ask for your forgiveness. This is the sinner's prayer. It's the beginning of the Christian life. It's the beginning of the Christian walk. And if you're here this morning, and you have, you have yet to begin that journey, that walk, and you sense that you're, you've got a wake-up call. Or maybe you've had that wake-up call before. Or the next time you do have that wake-up call. Well, you can, pray this, you can pray this prayer. The sinner's prayer. And if you want to talk to me or anybody else in this church, we'll be happy to walk you through it and also walk with you after that. Jesus says, when you've returned, strengthen the flock, strengthen your brothers. We're called as Christians to do that, to encourage one another. 
the sinner's prayer. Our prayers are important. They matter to God. But greater are Christ's prayers on our behalf. When Jesus says, I have prayed for you, even when others fail, even when you fail, and not just that, but in your failures, I pray for you. In your failures, I pray for you. Because he knows that we will fail, not once, not one, not twice, not three times like Peter, but over and over again we have failed Jesus. And over and over again we will fail Jesus. That is the good news of the gospel, is that we will fail. We will make mistakes. We will disappoint one another. We will deny our God. But those mistakes don't define us. By the grace of God, they don't define us. In, in, John, in 1 John, it says that Jesus stands before God on our behalf. He's our advocate. So while we fail and while others around us fail, Jesus does not. The gospel, the good news is that without Jesus, we will fail. But with Jesus, we won't because Jesus does not. Finally, why does, why does Jesus do this? Why does God do this? It's, a, it's hard to fathom why a God would do this. And, and the answer is simple. 1 John 4, 8. God is love because God loves us. Uh, because God loves us, he, he died for us. And he paid for those sins. He paid for those mistakes. He paid for those failures. And that's what's amazing. What a wonderful, gracious, and loving Lord. Um, what an amazing God that we've been invited to serve. Let's pray. Lord, we recognize, Lord, that we fall short. Paul tells us that all, all have sinned and fallen short of your glory. Lord, we want to we wanna say sorry for the times that we do, God. And we, we know, Lord, that Satan is at work. And Satan will try to tear us down and tear our world down around us. But, Lord, I pray that we would draw upon your strength, Lord. Lord, thank you for praying on our behalf, Lord, so that we who forget Lord, continue to be strengthened by you. Lord, thank you that in our failures and in the failures of others, Lord, that you are strong because, Lord, you are the God who does not fail. So, Lord, we want to, fo we want to fix our eyes on you, Lord, the great and perfect Lord. And, God, I pray that um, here at the bridge, here in our families, God, every time we fail and every time we make mistakes, Lord, that we would reflect on it. Lord, that every now and then you would give us our rooster crows. You would give us these wake-up calls, reminding us, Lord, that we have taken the wrong path towards overconfidence and towards pride so that we may turn back to you. And Lord, I pray that when we turn back to you, you send us on those adventures, the adventures of reaching out to others and strengthening each other and encouraging each other. And Lord, what a wonderful, wonderful opportunity. What a wonderful gift that you have given us to be called, Lord, your children. We give thanks for your grace and your mercy that is new every morning. In Jesus' name, amen.